This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to the first movie in our month of Alfred Hitchcock, The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day, the 1956 U.S. version. However, quickly, before we get to the show, next week we are continuing our month of Alfred Hitchcock with another classic, Dial M for Murder, starring Grace Kelly and Ray Milland. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, Dad, this is only our second Hitchcock movie. This is only our second Hitchcock movie we've discussed on the show so far, and you have been lobbying for some time to do Hitchcock, as I believe he is your favorite director. Can you tell us why? Yes, I can. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a master storyteller. There is so much visual about his movies, um, his ability to draw suspense, his ability to tell stories in a manner that is believable, and, and it's unique in the fact that he can basically tell a story without really any purpose. I mean... We we did the the uh, North by Northwest, the MacGuffin as he called it, was a keeper of secrets, a microfilm. They don't even discuss why because it's irrelevant what they're trying to do. It's the action sequence, it's the acting, it's the camera, and it's the uh, the plot and movement of the film itself. I, I just I I fell in love with his work. Early on, I started out actually watching him as a or his films that were British. The first film of his that I ever saw was The 39 Steps, which was one of his most successful British films and which propelled him into Hollywood in 1941 when he did Rebecca. And I've just gone through the years watching as many of his films as I can um, there are a few that I have yet to see that I really want to or should sit down and do, but to me, this is as close to comfort food as you get because I don't think I've seen a an Alfred Hitchcock film that I don't like. I like some more than I like others. Some of the ones when he was earlier on, I feel are inferior when compared to something that's much more masterpiece like when you get to like a vertigo or a north by northwest or you know some of the the ones that i think everybody knows are the peak of his powers type of ordeal but i would definitely agree with you that 
there's an old adage in movies and visual storytelling, show, don't tell. And you really get a sense of that in this movie. There's a 12-minute scene with no dialogue, and yet you're never lost at all. Well, and one of the things that's really in, or interesting is that he was a, a, a wonder to work with as a cinematographer because... Hitchcock knew every scene and how he wanted it to look and how the cameras were to be set and what was going to happen. It wasn't anything that you came in and you had to play around and whatever. You set the cameras, you shot it, you were done. On to the next scene. And part of that was is Hitchcock started out in, in British film as a storyboard director and draft, drew all the scenes that were going to be done and shot in the film. And uh, for that reason, he was very elaborate in doing his own storyboards, so he knew every film. So that's part of the reason why his films, I think, tend to be so cohesive, because he knows what needs to go in and how it's supposed to look and how it's supposed to track from scene to scene. So you mentioned before the period of Alfred Hitchcock's career where he was still in the UK or Britain. And this is a direct remake of a 1934 film by the same name, although I would say that this isn't his only remake of sorts, that he has some other pseudo-remakes of other films where he basically borrows the plot line for later work that he did that I think is superior, such as Sabotage is basically the precursor to North by Northwest in many ways. But how would you compare the two movies, his 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much and this version? Well, his uh, comment, he was uh, doing an interview uh, by the French director Truffaut, and he said that uh, the 1934 version was by an amateur, and the 1956 version was by a professional. I just thought it was much more cohesive. There was a tent. Just to put this in there, uh, the direct quote is, the first was made by a talented amateur. The second was made by a professional. Couldn't give himself too much disservice. I see. Okay. Anyway, I've seen both. Um, the 34 version is worth watching. It just, the pacing was not quite as good. The camera angles were not quite as good. The overall storyline was not quite as consistent and that the pacing was not quite as uh, as consistent throughout the film. This is a film that where you start watching it, and then all of a sudden you look at your watch, and you're an hour and a half into the film, and it doesn't seem like any time has passed. I did not get that feeling from the 1934 version. I would tend to agree on a lot of those points. I also thought that it was kind of a an opaque version. A lot of things were blended together. The line reading was much more obfuscated. The plot line was a little bit harder to follow. You couldn't delineate between certain characters at times with the way it was shot. And I didn't think that the final set pieces worked nearly as well as this one. Although I think setting it up in the opening credits that the crash of symbols was somehow going to be this magnanimous moment in the film kind of undercuts the moment where it's actually supposed to happen. 
I think they could have probably taken that whole that one piece of it out of it out of there and actually done themselves a better service that you're waiting for that suspenseful moment instead of basically telegraphing it. That being said, the opera house and then the embassy scenes work a lot better than a shootout in some random neighborhood borough of London. <laughs> yes. At least in my opinion. All right. And then I guess this is also made during this period of Hitchcock's career, which I would say is his best by far decade. I know some people might look at the 40s and say that he did a lot of great work. It was the era in which he won his only Best Picture Award, if you can say that. He never won a Best Director Award. It was also the only time that he got nominated for Best Director was in 41. And you start listing off a few of the big classic ones. Rope was in there, Shadow of a Doubt, which we're going to do in a couple of weeks. You talk about uh, Sabotage, Saboteur, State, or uh, what is it, Lifeboat? In all of those, Notorious is in there, yes. Suspension or Suspicion. So that was certainly a great period, although I would argue that comparatively, North by Northwest, Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, To Catch a Thief, Dial M for Murder, and we're not even mentioning some of the off-brand films like Stage Fright or uh, The Wrong Man, you know, that... The quality of film overall, I think, is a little bit higher in the 50s, where I think he'd really figured out how to master his craft comparatively. So where would you put this in the context of that decade for him? Because it kind of comes in the middle of his period with To Catch a Thief and The Trouble with Harry. Yes, and and what do you mean by where would I put it? Where would you classify this within the larger context of his 50s period. Uh, this is uh, uh, above the medium or the median. It's not one of the better films, I think. It's well done, but I much prefer Rear Window. I much prefer Vertigo. I much prefer um, even To Catch a Thief. This is a good film. Like I said, Dial M for Murder, I like better. It, this is just a f- good film it is not going to be one of or one of the top 10 on my list of Hitchcock films. If I were to grade quality for the overall decade, I think I would go somewhere in the neighborhood that you could put it in tiers. So tier one being Rear Window, North by Northwest, and Vertigo. Tier two probably being Dial M, This, To Catch a Thief. And then you put in the tier three, which is going to be clearly, you know, just about everything else. Maybe with the exception being The Trouble with Harry, which I haven't seen, but you've said repeatedly, I think even on the show, that he did not do a great job doing comedy. No, and I've only seen bits and pieces of it. It's a very dark comedy, and I'm hoping to see the entire thing. So maybe I'll have a better uh, opinion of it uh, in the next couple weeks, because I'm going to try to watch it here when we have a little bit of a break and a vacation. Focusing solely on this movie, what, if anything, is your relationship to it? I I think, again, this was one of these films. And I I go back after, see, my freshman year of college, I had uh, Mondays where my only class was at 8 o'clock at night because I had an adjunct economics professor. So I had all Monday, and usually I was in the dorm by myself studying and working. 
and I had a TV, and I'd put the TV on, and WGN out of Chicago would always have an old movie. And so the 39 Steps was on. And I was so enthralled by this film that I got interested. My dad, of course, because I'm telling him, hit this uh, Hitchcock, and he kept telling me, oh, you got to see this one, and you got to see this one. And at the time, this was even before Blockbuster, I would come home and um, Woodman's Grocery Store had a uh, VHS section where you could go and rent movies. And so I just started going and finding every Hitchcock film I could and started watching them. And I believe this is one of those where I brought it home and watched it on a, uh, like a Saturday night on our VCR at the time and uh, with my dad. And I'm, I'm sure this is another one of the films that I ex- uh, presented or showed to your mother while we were dating. So it's just been a film I've watched over and over. It's like on a two-year cycle about throughout my life since about a, about the age of 18, 19. So there comes a time in every movie watcher's life where they transition away from Disney animated to eventually watching adult films. And this is one of three movies that I can recollect of Hitchcock's career that I basically grew up on that was an adult movie, but that could be understandable from most ages. It's this one, it's North by Northwest, and it's Rear Window. And they're all very classic. They're very wholesome, I think is the right word for it. And so they're very easy to watch and understand pretty much everything that's going on. There's not too much of an action that you can't understand, even as a young child. And I think probably about six, seven, eight years old, after I was done with, you know, the Mighty Ducks, this is like that next set of films or whatever else that you start putting on. And I've grown up on films like this in some capacity for most of my life because of you and grandpa and everybody else at some point or another putting these on. So these have been kind of a staple of my adult life, more or less, maybe even adolescent life. Well, I tried for a long time because I, I, both this and music, because I wanted to make sure you understood that music didn't start in 1995. Anyway, let's give everybody some context on this film. Do you have your plot summary ready? I do. Dr. Benjamin Ben McKenna, James Stewart, his wife, popular singer Josephine Joe Conway McKenna, Doris Day, and their son Henry, Hank McKenna, Christopher Olson, are vacationing in French Morocco. Traveling from Casablanca to Marrakesh, they meet Frenchman Louis Bernard, Daniel Guillain. The friendly English couple, Lucy and Edward Drayton, Bernard Mills and Brenda de Banzi, after agreeing to meet up in the marketplace the next day with the Draytons, the McKenna see Bernard in disguise being chased and stabbed to death. The dying Bernard whispers that a foreign statesman will be assassinated in London and that Ben must tell the authorities about Ambrose Chapel. However, just as Ben is about to tell the police his story, a mysterious phone call tells Ben that Hank has been kidnapped. Will the McKennas find Hank? and stop the assassination. Thank you. Cast for this, James Stewart as Dr. Benjamin Ben McKenna, Doris Day as Josephine Joe Conway McKenna, 
Brenda DeBonzi as Lucy Drayton, Bernard Miles as Edward Drayton, Ralph Truman as Inspector Buchanan, Daniel Galeen as Louis Bernard, and Christopher Olson as Henry Hank McKenna. Recognition for this movie. The film was a commercial success. Filmed on a budget of $1.2 million, it grossed $11.333333 at the box office domestically, earning $4.1 million in U.S. theatrical rentals. The film won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for K. Sarah Sarah, Whatever Will Be Will Be, sung by Doris Day. In 2004, the American Film Institute included the song K. Sarah Sarah, Whatever Will Be Will Be, as the number 48 listed entrant in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs. Did you know? In the book-length interview, Hitchcock Truffaut in 1967, in response to fellow filmmaker Francois Truffaut's assertion that aspects of the remake were by far superior, Hitchcock replied, let's say the first version is the work of a talented amateur and the second was made by a professional. Did you know? Throughout the filming, Doris Day became increasingly concerned that Alfred Hitchcock paid more attention to camera setups, lighting, and technical matters than he did to her performance. Convinced that he was displeased with her work, she finally confronted him. His reply was, My dear Miss Day, if you weren't giving me what I wanted, then I would have to direct you. Did you know? Movie buffs considered this one of five lost Hitchcocks with Rear Window, 1954, Rope, 1948, the Trouble with Harry, 1955, and Vertigo, 1958. Because they were unavailable for 30 years because their rights were bought back by Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter. The five movies were re-released in theaters around 1984. This movie was revived again in 2018, movie archive circuits, in the original projection system, VistaVision, and dimensional sound system, Perspectus Sound, due to the preservation work of UCLA Movie Archive. Did you know? At first, Doris Day refused to record K Sarah Sarah as a popular song release, dismissing it as a, quote, a forgettable children's song, end quote. It not only went on to win an Academy Award, but also became the biggest hit of her recording career and her signature song. She sang the same song in two more movies, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, 1960, and The Glass Bottom Boat, 1966 and it was used as the theme song for all 124 episodes of her television series, The Doris Day Show, 1968. Good show, by the way. Did you know? The movie was originally to be produced by Paramount Pictures and Patron, a company to be jointly owned by James Stewart, Doris Day, and Alfred Hitchcock. When the movie finally went before the cameras, the production company was Philwit Production Inc., co-owned by Hitchcock and Stewart. The reason Day was not included in the final production deal has not been publicly disclosed. However, it may have had something to do with Day's husband and manager at the time, Martin Melker, a man absolutely despised and considered shady by many in Hollywood. There was a good reason for this. Miss Day eventually learned that she was all but penniless as a result of his management. Did you know? The plot called for a man, Daniel Gillen, in the role of Louis Bernard, to be discovered as quote, not Moroccan because he was wearing dark makeup. After numerous trials, the makeup artists couldn't find a makeup that would come off easily. Instead, they painted James Stewart's fingers with light-colored powder so that he would leave pale streaks on Galeen's skin. According to Patricia Hitchcock, this idea was suggested by Galeen himself. Did you know? 
The Albert Hall sequence lasts 12 minutes without a single word of dialogue and consists of 124 separate shots. Did you know? Initially, the script contained a great deal of dialogue at the Royal Albert Hall. According to the New York Times, James Stewart was originally to deliver a page-long speech about why they had to stop the concert, but this didn't go over well with Alfred Hitchcock. You're talking so much, I'm unable to enjoy the London Symphony, Hitchcock complained to Stewart. Just wave your arms a lot and run up the stairs. This was apparently normal behavior for Hitchcock, who was suspicious of the spoken word. All right, what is your elevator pitch for this movie, Dad? The average man caught in a web of intrigue rises to the occasion. Mine was, in an oft-used trope of Hitchcock, a case of mistaken identity wraps an American couple up in a case of espionage, crime, and murder. I find it interesting. I've never had a case of mistaken identity, I guess, because there aren't too many short, fat guys running around named Dana. Yeah, it might be very hard. Although, for that matter, most people do refer to you on customer service lines as Mrs. Dana Duncan. (sighs) (laughs) Yes. You set yourself up for that one. Best performance? Doris Day. Mine was the same. Just the scene where she's having the breakdown... That scene alone was just, that was really, really good acting. I mean, for somebody who was a novice, I mean, she was a big band lead singer in the 40s. I think she was with Benny Goodman, if I remember correctly. Uh, Don't hold me to that. But, you know, she made the transition into films and was, for the most part, doing work where she played a tomboy. And this film kind of made her into more of a star and, and such and the acting she had to do was really, really good. I'll be honest. For a figure like James Stewart, who is an Academy Award winner, who had been in some of the biggest movies to date at that time, and was already a multiple-time star for Hitchcock, she acted the pants off of him in this movie. I thought Stewart was forgettable, that his performance was kind of vanilla and mundane, and certainly doesn't have the depth or uh, creativity that he has in like Rear Window or Vertigo. I thought she outacted him in just about every scene, and it was noticeable. And by just that extension alone, she should get best performance, because to take on a titan of the acting industry, that's still one of the iconic figures of Hollywood, and basically outdo him in a movie is no mere feat. I, I, I totally agree. I, I did not think James Stewart's performance was that memorable. It seemed to me to some extent that he could have just been mailing it in because really most of his best scenes were without dialogue. I, I still always love the scene of him walking to see the into the taxidermy shop of Ambrose Chapel uh, looking for him. And that scene where he's uncomfortable because he thinks somebody's following him. It's just him walking, his body language and facial expressions, and the sound of his footsteps on the cobblestone. There are scenes like that where he doesn't have to give a line, that his body language is very telling. Those are the scenes that are memorable. When he has to deliver dialogue, it's like just a, a... 
uh, do you quote a uh, former football general manager a fart in the wind? If I didn't know what Stuart was capable in a lot of other great movies that we've seen over time, I would probably think this was fine. But I've seen the capability of Stuart when he really gives into a role. Some of my favorite ones, you know, even from Rear Window, which I don't think requires him to have a lot of uh, emotional swings. He still gives a lot more depth to the character than he ever does in this when he has a child missing. I just never thought he rose to the occasion to signify what was happening on screen. It just seemed wooden. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I just... The one time I'll give him a little bit of credence, but it's, again, a non-dialogue part, is when he bursts into the room to rescue Hank. I think there's a little bit more genuineness in his overall reaction in finding his son. But you may be right. He may have just completely phoned this one in. Best secondary, who do you have? Uh, Bernard Herman, the uh, uh, music director and composer who did all the background music. He actually conducted the London Symphony in Albert Hall for the film. And uh, I think the music in this film uh, has a prominent part, and I like what he did and how it was arranged and thought that uh, it was one of his better uh, films. Herman did uh, most of the music for Hitchcock through the 50s, and... um, uh, including Vertigo, so it's probably not even his best performance, but I thought that the the music really made a significant impact in this film. Yes, there are definitely tones that he reborrows for Vertigo, and I swear that even some of the small transition notes were borrowed and reused in uh, North by Northwest as well. You can definitely hear their similarities between them, in just them having certain action scenes that are going on. And there's music just simply played over the top in the way that a lot of Hitchcock films were done, especially in the 50s, that gave a little bit of extra credence. I think it's one of the reasons that I've always appreciated a good score that can give uh, additional feeling and emotion to a particular scene, especially in the course of action as opposed to dialogue. Best secondary for me, though, I went with Hitchcock, and I think it's for a very simple reason. It's that he improved upon and completed a film that he basically remade of his own to prove he could do it better. I think that this is a more successful, better version that he unwrinkled all of the problems that I found to be the case with the original. And how many of us don't have a project that we really love and would have liked to have gone back and maybe redone it. And he actually was successful not only in doing that, but making it commercially successful on top of it. I think just for the overall package of what this film presents, I'm going to give it to him. Good points. So charismatic. I went also with Doris Day. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious, to be quite fair, that she's the most charismatic person in this. And again, with her amount of screen time and how many times we get her kind of alone, she's a larger presence through the course of the film. I don't really think it's arguable. Yeah, I mean, 
she had a presence, and I know that. And I mean, we've done a couple of Doris Day. This is the second Doris Day film we've done, and and she does have that presence. And I understand your point very well that she did have a very good film presence. She came across always as being very believable, but very common. She was relatable. I would assume that in the 1950s, there were a lot of women that would have been able to relate with her and uh, her situation. I went with most charismatic, though, as being Hitchcock, simply because at that time, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was on television. And uh, he had hit after hit after hit. And quite frankly, you know, if this film was done by Joe Smith, as opposed to Alfred Hitchcock, I don't think it's going to do commercially nearly as well as it did. Because there's nothing really, you know, overpowering about this film. It's not like, oh my God, you've got to go see this film. It's one of these... Ah, yeah, Hitchcock did it again. It's really good, but yeah, you need to go. It's because it's Hitchcock. And so to that extent, there's a certain charisma. There's a certain that because it's Hitchcock and Hitchcock's presence that makes the film bigger than the film is. Yeah, he has an unusually high batting average for a lot of films over the course of his career. It's an interesting argument. I, I don't think we've ever taken that one on, and you usually are much more uh, willing to take chances in this category. So interesting. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. You know, in retrospect, and I've seen several articles that have been written by critics the same way, the fact that Hitchcock, I mean, Hitchcock came from a poor family, okay? His father was a fishmonger, and, uh, you know, he was a fisherman, sold fish, and the way the reason fish and chips is so popular in Britain is if you were a fishmonger <laughs> and the, you could only keep the fish that you had in the store for about three days, after that, that would go bad. So what you'd do is, is that day you'd fry it all up and you'd sell it with French fries to whoever wanted to buy it. That way you could try to recoup some of your money if you hadn't sold the fresh fish. So he came from nothing. So he was always willing, when people were willing to offer him money, to look at ways of increasing his income because he was always worried about never having enough. And when he started doing television, which in Hollywood days in the four or in the fifties and into the sixties was like the poor sister, the poor the poor the poor stepchild. How dare you call yourself an artist and you're doing television? Oh my gosh. And the commercial success, his charisma and his name and his notoriety, I think irritated a lot of Hollywood. And so even though there were films that should have been probably given awards, they were not simply because of Hollywood's jealousy. Yeah. Well, we've still had a stigma up until I would say maybe the last decade where the lines have become much more blurred as to movies and TV and miniseries and serious actors going and doing stuff on TV or actually choosing to do more TV as opposed to single movies, that a lot of the artistic stuff is in TV right now as opposed to film, that there wasn't somehow a separation. 
even when you'd get certain actors making the TV to movie jump, there were only a few of them that actually did it successfully and piggybacked successful television runs into movie careers where they were stars. And you could probably name them all maybe on one hand, if not two. There's a couple that were television stars that made the transition. Ryan O'Neill was one of the early ones. He originally did the TV show, uh, uh, Nighttime Soap Opera, Peyton Place. But the most famous one, and I'm going to say this, this is the transition period. The guy who made the transition from film star to major television star and made it into a financial success in part because of his uh, troubled history in substance abuse and such. A lot of Hollywood wouldn't work, would work with him. It's Kiefer Sutherland. When he did 24, that was the transition because not only did he do 24 and it became a hit, he was the first to figure out we're going to box the season, we're going to have resale, we're going to have syndication of season by season, and you can make a lot of money doing it this way. And you can have a semblance of a decent career and have the ability to really hone and develop the character over a long period of time. I, that's my argument is, is that he was the transition to a lot of from Hollywood to television and kind of blurred that distinction. He started that process. Honestly, my argument is, is that it didn't take off and become a big thing until Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson did True Detective. Because I think that is the linchpin where there's a true pivot point to big movie stars coming and doing movies, or excuse me, TV as opposed to movies, where Kiefer seemed like he was out on his own and wasn't doing that. I mean, you could even say to a certain extent, uh, Steve Carell doing The Office while he also simultaneously juggled a movie career was one thing, but he basically started doing The Office at the same time that he had started doing movies. The Office started the same year that he did 40-Year-Old Virgin. So I, I don't really buy that nearly as much as some other ones. But yes, about that 2000s period, you could see some of the first signs of it. I just think where you break the dam is about that True Detective Season 1 period, which is about 2012, if I remember right. Uh, let's move to Best Scene, then. Uh, the ones that I wrote down, as, as far as good ones, in my opinion, Bus Ride, Arabian Dinner, Marrakesh Marketplace, Ambrose Chapel, Royal Albert Hall, The Embassy. Now, you could probably break down Ambrose Chapel into about three or four scenes, and you might even be able to break down Marrakesh into two, but realistically, there's a few big ones in this one, and I'll treat them as larger sequences. Are there any that I missed? No. And I had actually a division. Ambrose Chapel, the actual building versus looking for Ambrose Chapel in the taxidermy shop. Sure. And that's why I said, I think that one could probably be broken into four pieces realistically, because not only is the taxidermy shop, the original thing, there's also kind of a sequencing or, a little bit of transition where Joe goes out and finds the actual building as opposed to the place or the person. Then you talk about the stuff that actually happens in the chapel and 
him trying to escape via the bell tower and all, all of that stuff. But regardless, we'll move forward on this. What do you think is the best scene out of those? <laughs> the best scene for me is the Albert Hall scene. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think it, I really think that because it's quite obvious that Hitchcock felt that was going to be the right one and why he sets it up in the opening credits as being the linchpin scene. Yeah. It, it, it just, it's so Hitchcock that he, it's a visual medium and he, <laughs> the entire story is told through music and visual, the camera. There's no lines. You said there's 12 minutes where there's not a single line, but you can follow and you know what the story is. You know the frustration that James, that Jimmy Stewart is undertaking, trying to convey to the police what's going on and what they need to do. And finally he gets frustrated and just starts acting on his own. And Doris Day is completely, un, you know, she doesn't know what to do. She's in, she's in torment because she understands what might happen versus what's, you know, what is likely to happen and she can see it and she, and the scream is the, is the first line, if it's even a line that's portrayed in the film, in that whole sequence. And that is the climactic point where everything goes. It's the scream, then the crescendo, and everything then changes from that point forward. Do you know the term spike the lens or spike the camera? No. Okay, it's apparently an industry term that I didn't know until probably the last year and a half, where you look straight into the camera. Now, most industry professionals will tell you that's an absolute no-no. However, I would say it's used in certain circumstances, such as when you get Francis Underwood narrating to the audience directly and breaking the fourth wall in House of Cards, or you get a few of those breaking the fourth wall moments where they're talking directly to the audience. I think one of the signature moments of Alfred Hitchcock that no one else repeats is how he spikes the lens with certain camera shots and characters like being either revealed or reacting. He spikes the lens with the gun pointing out behind the curtain in that scene. And you follow the trace of it as it's going up the curtain and raising. And you keep flashing back and forth and back and forth to build that suspense. He knew exactly what he wanted out of that scene. He knew exactly that he wanted the opportunity to redo that scene because it should have been that way the first time and he didn't do it correctly in the previous version, in my opinion. He has such a mastery of that visual piece, and you see it on full display without all of the dialogue. There are not many directors that can get away with a 12-minute scene where it's music and action. Well, in the 34 version, Peter Lorre was the sinister one, and Hitchcock, in the biography I've read of Hitchcock, that was the last film Hitchcock had worked with Peter Lorre because Peter Lorre was a heroin addict. And throughout the filming, he constantly had trouble getting Peter Lorre on set and with his lines learned because he was in such a drug-induced stupor most of the time that he had difficulty. And so 
to some extent, the reason Hitchcock really wanted to do the film again was he felt that uh, Laurie's uh, unprofessionalism, as he called it, uh, distracted him from being able to direct the film completely the way he wanted. I think Laurie is honestly one of the weakest parts of that film, to be fair. Even though I think he creates the most memorable character. Yeah. Well, Peter Laurie, in every film he was in, created a memorable character. And it's partly because of, you know, the voice and the mannerisms and the way he looked. But he, he was just very difficult to work with, which is pretty much why he kind of burned his bridges and ended up in kind of uh, uh, acting purgatory by the 50s. So I went with the Royal Albert Hall as also my favorite and the most indelible. I think it's rather obvious by now that that would end up being both. But I will say that I watched the scene multiple times for that exact reason. So it, to me, is no surprise. It's favorite and most indelible. Your favorite and most indelible, then? The taxidermy scene. I think that's just hilarious. And from what I understand, having listened to an interview, they had, the, the crew had set up or the producers had set up and, and tried to set up a taxidermy shop. And it was so pristine and whatever. Hitchcock hated it, said this has never worked. He just started calling taxidermists. And so apparently the scene was filmed in an actual taxidermy shop. And uh, he just wanted the raw, just bizarreness of you know, stuffing animals and having hides and stuff. And that scene is just so Hitchcock. He had such a bizarre sense of humor at times that that scene, I can just picture him just finding that to be incredibly hilarious. Uh, although Hitchcock never really was known to have really laughed a lot. Uh, but he found things humorous and kind of kept them to himself. But I, I think that's that's one of the reasons why that's my favorite scene, and that's always the scene I remember out of the film more than anything. Most indelible. Well, and that, again, well, most indelible would be the exact same thing, which is the most memorable to me because that scene just, I whatever I think of the film, I think of the fact that of that scene. Although close second is again leading to that because it's been pointed out just the sheer sight of, of Stuart and feeling unnerved by sounds of footsteps approaching you in a quiet location with just the sounds of your feet on the cobblestones. Quite frankly, I almost gave that scene, even though it's not even a full scene, weight because the number of times I've been walking on a deserted street and uh, it's just the sounds of my shoes pounding the pavement brings me always back to that scene. Honestly, I think a better version of that is uh, the end of All the President's Men with Redford. It's another one similar. All right, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right. Uh, we do not have any in memoriam this week, uh, given that this is a pre-recording. So we will cover that here in a couple more weeks. We're going to have a lot of them. Well, 
hopefully not a lot of them, but we'll have a few to do when we uh, get back to regular performances. But uh, then let's move to best funniest lines. Honestly, there were not a lot of them in here. I know that you said that you had trouble identifying too many, if any at all. Did you have any? K Sarah Sarah. I would put that more of song uh, as opposed okay. to line, but I, I, I understand. That's about it. So I have a dialogue one. Do you live in France, Mr. Bernard? Sometimes. Do you eat snails when I'm lucky enough to get them? Well, if you ever get hungry, our garden back home is full of snails. Thank you for the invitation. If you ever get hungry, our garden back home is full of snails. We tried everything to get rid of them. We never thought of a Frenchman. Uh, I also had the ambassador to Drayton. You English intellectuals will be the death of us all. Yeah. Just because I think that fits in a lot of ways. So Bernard, there are moments in life when we all need a little help. And then finally, Ben, what are we, are we about to have our monthly fight? Yes. Yeah, that sticks out for a married couple. No comment. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy's up first. Would you like to go first or should I? Sure. Legacy. Again, this is in the pantheon of Hitchcock classic films. It's not a great one. I don't think it is considered by the general public as being one of his greater films. The critics liked it, but again, was not one of his greater films. So I wanted 3.5 for both for a seven total. Okay. Yeah, I think I would follow some of your same arguments. I ended a different point total, given that I think this is actually more famous for its title than it is for the movie itself. I think people more resonate with the title than anything that's in this movie. I think it was appreciated in the industry at the time and is more respected generally and in hindsight than the 34 version, so I'll give it some credit for that. But as you said, it's not one of his renowned works. I would say this is all things being equal for Hitchcock movies, a second or third tier movie, and kind of gets lost compared to some of his other seminal 50s work, let alone just some of his better films overall. I think if you had made a top 10, this would be lucky to edge in at the 10th spot. There are just so many other great works of his that I think are more creative and better done. So I ended up at a two for the industry. I gave a three for the audience for a five overall because As I said, I think that the title, which has been borrowed and is part of the cultural lexicon or vernacular, if you will, has been reused and satirized in several ways that provide this thing some lasting legacy, but only on its name. So that is a six between us for the average. Let's move to impact significance. Do you want to go first again? Sure. Did very well at the box office. Again, I think there's a certain element of Hitchcock putting something out and the general audience liking it and willing to watch it. I don't think it had as much impact in the industry as others had. Wasn't nominated for a lot of awards. The only reason I gave it uh, for the industry any credence is because I think people realized at that point in time how good of an actress Doris Day was. So for the industry, I went with a uh, a 3.5. And for the public, because of its significant uh, draw and popularity, I went with a 4. So 7.5? 7.5. 
That would be correct. All right, just making sure my adding skills are still good. Again, this was commercially popular and successful, drawing mostly good reviews with a few exceptions for those that enjoyed or fondly remembered the 34 version. I'm not sure why. I would say that it drew some respect from contemporaries like Truffaut and other directors, but it was widely accepted more by the audience than I would say that it was by industry people. And that was because the industry people, as you've mentioned before, kind of snubbed Hitchcock for being more entertainment and pop culture. In a way, this was like the Marvel or how people treat Marvel movies now, that they're pop fun entertainment, but they're nothing serious that true artists should ever be associated with. And because this is a second or third tier one, I can't give it high marks on all of that. I will give it a four for the industry because I do agree with you that it is good for Stewart and Doris Day at various points in their career, although Stewart would only have one more movie with Hitchcock before they separated, and that would be Vertigo, which we're going to cover in a lot more detail at a different time. But the audience being good, not great for this movie, and uh, being accepting, I'll equally give them fours on each for an eight overall, and that is a 7.75 between us. I will take novelty first, however, as we draw to that one. This is an interestingly daring film for as run-of-the-mill as its sequencing is. Like, the, the story and the plotline isn't particularly deep or meaningful in any way. This very much borrows from what I think it is a better-paced version of this. I think this could actually be a shorter film. I think they draw it out a little bit too much, in my opinion. But that being said... Compared to it opening in a European ski lodge, setting the movie in Morocco, and having one of the seminal moments of the movie being a young boy accidentally removing the veil of a Muslim woman is extraordinarily daring for a movie-going culture that had no concept of Muslims in the mid-50s. It's not like where, in hindsight, we've been through 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq and having to deal with being involved in a lot of Middle Eastern culture building and getting to know people that were immigrating to the U.S., this is from a place of zero perspective. And getting these cultural moments, such as how to eat an Arabian chicken with only two fingers and a thumb, and getting that comp or scolded in the middle of the restaurant. So, not to mention that what happens in a Moroccan marketplace, which no one else would have an idea of. None of these were touched or explored in the more famous Casablanca or were significantly ahead of their time for doing so. I'm going to go with a nine on this one because despite all of that, it does have some moments where they're just ahead of the curve in ways that I wouldn't have necessarily expected or that I really remembered because it's been a while since I've seen this movie, but are a little bit shocking in how novel they are on second glance. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, let's admit what, what it is, which is the left hand is considered unclean in the Muslim world. That's the, the left hand is what you use to wash yourself and to take care of certain personal needs. And that's why if you're caught committing a crime, theft or something like that, that they, uh, 
chop off the right hand because then you'll constantly be eating with the wrong hand and you'll be deemed unclean wherever you go. And that's why the left hand is not used. Um, and I, I understand the, the your arguments and such. It is a remake. Now, I found it interesting that the way Hitchcock did it was is he wanted a fresh approach. So he had his team of writers. Well, and usually his team of writers is he has a bunch of writers who write the screenplay. And then he and his wife, Alma, uh, would sit down and, and get involved and walk through and talk through everything for the rewrites. They never took credits as writers, but their influence, especially Alma's, uh, was substantial. Um, she basically had her fingerprints over every script that Hitchcock did. She was the behind-the-scenes person who probably did more for Hitchcock than any other human. So to that extent, I went down a little bit. And um, I went with a 7.5. I, I think that there was a certain aspect of this being set in North Africa and then ultimately ends up in Britain and, and such. But um, so that's where I came from, I guess. I can understand maybe the point on a remake. I just think for a remake, it really, other than maybe some of the basic story structure, really doesn't borrow much from the original. The characters are completely different. The child is different in almost every way. The the way or the settings are completely different. Realistically, it only borrows that there is a seminal event in a church and in Royal Albert Hall. Well, Hitchcock refused to allow the writers for the 1956 version to either see the screenplay or the film from the 1934 version. The entirety of what they were told is, is this is the plot. Hitchcock walked them through the story, gave it an amorphous uh, background, where it was set, what happens exactly, definition of the characters or where they came from, how they're there, etc., and let the writers create a new, fresher approach. So, yes, I can understand that. But again, and I'm not just talking about it being a remake. It's the same. It's so much of Hitchcock. Wrong man, wrong place, wrong time, uh, swept up into events beyond his control situation. It's It's very... It's a formula that Hitchcock used multiple times and which worked for him. So it's not that original of a concept, not as much as some of the other films he's done, Psycho, The Birds. Vertigo. Well, I think even Vertigo, there's a certain element that's, you know, similar, but I think that Vertigo is probably fresher than 90% of them. North by Northwest is a very much of the same same uh, class or same, you know, genre of Hitchcock. Uh, anyway, that's an 8.25 between us for the average classicness. You always lead the category. Go right ahead. I didn't find a whole lot that was problematic. The only thing I could possibly say is is that 
uh, Louis Bernard trying to be a, uh, uh, a Moroccan was a little bit, but that had to be, that was the basic, you know, he's hiding, uh, you know, trying to blend in so he can gain the information necessary to disclose what's going to happen. Other than that, I didn't find much wrong with it. Uh, the, the scenes, you know, um, in general, the only thing I would comment again is, is that again, it's a, very 1950s version. You know, of course, the women are the ones that are most concerned about the boy. Mrs. Drayton is the one who is, uh, you know, appalled by, you know, they're going to kill the boy and etc. So I wanted the 9.5 and gave it just a slight reduction for some of those reasons that I've indicated. As I put through a couple of weeks ago with our Sunset Boulevard review, I stay at my 7 unless there's a reason to bump it up. Most of the reasons why I start with a seven is, is there are a lot of reasons usually for classicness to knock something down. I didn't find any like you. I think that when I mentioned it at the top, that this was one of the wholesome movies of my adult childhood or adolescence, if you want to put it that way with rear window and with uh, North by Northwest there's really not anything overly challenging about even societal norms. I mean, yeah, you might be able to say something about that or the fact that uh, they make a, some really off-color black humor jokes about whose operation is paying for what, but those are small pieces. I mean, even you could make a comment about the separate beds thing, but that's if you know context, that's really not that big a deal. I don't know. I, I guess the only place that I would differentiate is to give it points up. And that's for some of the things I mentioned in novelty, that this was a bit ahead of its time in culture uh, as far as exposing Americans to things that were abroad for maybe the first time. So, I mean, how many films in the 1950s can you honestly say that we're talking about Muslims? <laughs> so... It's about 50 years prescient to where America actually was going to eventually end up. And maybe people don't appreciate that in hindsight now that we're very familiar with the Islamic faith and some of its traditions. But, you know, I'll give it an 8.5. Do you need help with the math? Uh, no, because that's going to be a 9. Okay. Rewatchability, what do you have? This one I really struggled with because it's one, like I said, that's in my, it's in my queue. It, it's one that I, you know, if I'm like, not your having... queen. <laughs> I know she's not here to, to defend herself. Yes. Your sister. Anyway, this is one that if I'm don't have anything else and I really want to watch a film, but, and I don't necessarily want to have to think a lot or, you know, I can just put it on and let it go. That's the, the, it's comfort. I can just put this film on. It's one of those stupid things that, you know, if I'm like really tired and it's a Saturday afternoon and I know I'm going to likely fall asleep, I can put this film on because I can fall asleep for half an hour in the middle of the film and wake up and know exactly where I am and what's going on. For that reason, I went with a nine simply because it's not one of my absolute favorites. It's a good film and one that I like a lot, but it's not going to be one that I'm going to go to more than every two or three years. So I ended up in a very 
similar place to a lot of other recent films. Simply put, this is still somewhat fun and lighthearted despite its subject matter, but it drags at times to me compared to some other modern action and thriller movies. I think if somebody were to redo this, the pace would be quickened. Uh, We kind of talked about how the modern action movie was kind of expanded when we did the Indiana Jones trilogy uh, a few weeks back. And there just are not as many set pieces. There's a lot of dense dialogue moments that kind of are a little bit weightier. There isn't a lot of revolving action, although, again, the Royal Albert Hall scene, I don't know if I'd touch too much of that. But I think you could probably still take maybe a good 10 minutes out of this movie and it really wouldn't lose too much. Just trim some of the the pacing here and there. It's still a good movie and it's worthy of Hitchcock Month, but it's not one by comparative uh, that I can, I feel like I can learn as much about his craft and his mastery as I can with some other films. So I went with a six. Uh, So that ends at a 7.5 as the average between us. Audience score, we had an 86% for Google users and 84% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.5 overall. That gives us a 6 for Legacy, a 7.75 for Impact Significance, a 8.25 for Novelty, a 9 for Classicness, a 7.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.5 for Audience score. For a total of 46.95, and that puts it between Home Alone and Iron Man on the list. Okay. So kind of that pop culture comfort food favorites. Yes. All right, remaining questions. I didn't have any. I've seen this movie a ton of times. It kind of ties everything off. There really isn't a whole lot that I can think that you need to know realistically other than maybe whether or not the ambassador gets caught. Well, that was my one remaining question. Although I would point out one other thing. For those of you who are uh, older and grew up with syndicated TV shows after school while you're waiting for your parents to come home or for dinner, and you remember the Adams Family, the blonde, yes, the blonde who... uh, was uh, in the hotel room. One of Joe's friends was Carolyn Jones, who played Morticia on The Adams Family. It's hard to tell without the pale makeup and the black wig. Yes. So did I already preempt your remaining question then? Yes, you did, because I was. it's always one of the things I always wondered. Whatever happened to the ambassador? Because obviously he was trying to kill off the prime minister. Well, Drayton dies, I think that's assumed. I don't think he's knocked out. Although, it's just a fall down the stairs, so who knows. But Mrs. Drayton is kind of slinking away, and we don't know what's going to happen with that. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, any other thoughts for the week? No, I'm I'm enjoying the Hitchcock month, and uh, I hope everybody has a chance to watch these films And uh, there's a whole list of uh, great Hitchcock films that are out there. And uh, I hope everybody digs them up. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. 
Next week, we are continuing our month of Alfred Hitchcock with another classic, Dial M for Murder, starring Grace Kelly and Ray Milan. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Instagram or Twitter at gmotepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.